Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we enter part two of our giving series with Will Barlow. Today he lays out a comprehensive biblical theology on giving. Last time we focused more on the Old Testament tithe, and what Barlow was saying is that this practice is not transferable to New Testament Christianity. But there are a number of areas of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament that do carry forward on the subject of giving, and he covers those today, as well as some new aspects that New Testament giving brings in differently than the Old Testament giving. In the end, Barlow concludes that we should give freely and liberally, and that we should do it with a cheerful heart. And so I don't think what he's presenting here is at all radical, but I do think it is a helpful corrective to some theology that many of us have been exposed to in different traditions and that sometimes can cause a number of problems. So here now is episode 385, Giving in the New Testament with Will Barlow. Welcome back to Restitutio. So glad you could be with me today to continue our discussion of the tithe, of giving, and how how we are to think about this today. We, last time we talked about the Old Testament, the Old Testament tithe. We talked about flocks and crops and the Levites and the priests and all, all the, the 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 whole system that was put in place in the in the law. Uh, where are we going today? Well, Sean, thanks for having me again. And today we're going to talk about uh, the New Test, what the New Testament teaches. And I like to break that down really into uh, three principles from the Old Testament that extend and carry through all the way to the New Testament teaching on, on giving, and then three points of discontinuity. So there, there's definitely continuity throughout the Bible on giving, and there's, there's also some discontinuity, I believe, as well. All right, well, so let's let's start with the continuity then. What what do we see from the Old Testament that does carry on through to the New Testament? Well, the first thing I'd point to, I think, is is probably one of the most important things just in general about giving from my perspective, and that is to recognize that everything is God's. Everything is God's. You know, he he is uh, the one who owns everything, the whole earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as it says. And so as a response to that, our responsibility is just to steward what God has already given us, our life, our abilities, uh, part of our finances, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I don't think it gets much better uh, from, uh, from the Bible's perspective than what David says in his prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. And I'm just going to read one, one verse. And again, it's a wonderful passage. I you know, just for brevity's sake, verse 14 says, but who am I and what is is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you? I mean, that's to me, that's just the pinnacle. You know, here's a guy who was the king of God's nation at this time, Israel, and, you know, he's acknowledging in front of the people in this public prayer how, how can we offer anything to you willingly? This is all yours to begin with. And it just shows his you know, fantastic heart for God and his desire to serve God with all of his, all of his heart and all of his being. Yeah. 
that's such a phenomenal point, and I, I don't think it really matters whether we're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in church history, or today, or, or whatever we're talking about. This is an absolute statement, right? That all things come from you, and of your own have we given to you. It reminds me of Exodus 19, 5, where God says, uh, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And he just kind of like slips that in there. It's like, yeah, I own the whole place. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's really nothing that we can give God that isn't already his, but having that mindset as stewards instead of owners, maybe, mm-hmm. if we could put it in that terminology, Absolutely. can be tremendously freeing from the tyranny of possession. I think of the person who has the really new sports car, but who can't park it anywhere mm-hmm. because they're just terrified. Somebody's going to damage it or somebody's going to steal it. And if they go to the grocery store, they park it really far away so that no other cars park next to it and open their doors and dent it. Right. Um, and so there's a certain tyranny of of possessions where the possessions can, as they the cliche goes, own you right. rather than you owning them. And uh, this mentality really, really is freeing. It's a really freeing perspective, very, very godly perspective to bring to it. Absolutely. And like I said, we, we see this very clearly taught in the New Testament as well. This, this whole idea of, you know, God providing and us essentially, like you said, not being owners, but being stewards. Uh, you know, one great example of that in the Gospels is Jesus talking about the parables of the talents in Matthew 25. Uh, in that parable, various uh, stewards are entrusted with various amount of talents, and then they're held accountable <laughs> when the master comes back and, and, you know, what did you do with the talents I gave you? And of course, talent there, you know, means a specific amount of money. You know, it, it can definitely be applied to all aspects of our lives. You know, God, God gives us life. He gives us intelligence, the ability to relate to others, kindness, generosity. He gives us uh, the ability to, to make a living and to earn financially, uh, expertise in different categories. There are things that we develop over time, and, and a lot of those things God uh, either provided the foundation for by giving us raw talent and ability, uh, or He, you know, shepherds us along the way to help us excel in those categories. And then, of course, I think the Spirit can infuse those things, you know, after we become a Christian and, and uh, follow Christ. And God wants us to make the most of those. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from that parable of the talents in, in Matthew 25. Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly does stress that it came from God, but that he does expect us to do something with it. Right, right. And that's the balance. You know, God's job is to provide the raw <laughs> raw stuff, whatever that stuff is. And then it's our ability to, you know, our responsibility to do something about that. And, and that's in partnership with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ as we, as we walk through life. Okay. Uh, anything else to, uh, from the Old Testament that carries through? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Uh, just sticking with this one real quick on stewardship, uh, Paul, Paul talks about stewardship as well throughout his epistles, just to you know, bring it into the epistles. For those who hold a more dispensationalist perspective, Paul mentions stewardship on many occasions. And in Titus 1.7, the overseer, uh, the episcopos, is called a steward, uh, specifically of God's people. And then I love this verse in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And again, you know, I see that as sort of the, the New Testament version of that 1 Chronicles 29.14 verse, you know, it's 
uh, we've, we've received a gift and we're just stewards of what God's given to us by grace and we should use it to serve one another. So, yeah, very good. So our second thing that carries from the old Testament to the new Testament, and we've already talked about this a little bit last time, um, is that there is special consideration and care given to the poor, um, especially in view, both in the old Testament and the new Testament, quite frankly, is the poor among the community of faith. Uh, I think there's a lot of back and forth on this subject in modern times about the who is my neighbor teaching from Jesus is appropriate to consider. But in the context of the Old Testament, and I think it gets mentioned a lot in the New Testament too, uh, when we talk about consideration for the poor, it's especially the poor among the community of faith. And not that helping all of our neighbors isn't appropriate at times, but that there's a special focus among the poor in the community of faith. Uh-huh. And just to give some examples of this from the Old Testament, we've already talked about in the last episode uh, the tithe for the poor every third year in Deuteronomy 14, uh, 28, and 29. Then there are some really interesting provisions given in uh, Deuteronomy 15, especially the early part of that chapter in verses 1 through 14, including uh, the year of release every seventh year. And there is a special encouragement in that context to lend to the poor, even if the year of release is steadily approaching, uh, which I think is such a human thing to consider, you know, it's a, it's like, you it's know, like, hey, I don't want to give you this loan if it's going to get forgiven next <laughs> month or something, right? Right, exactly. You know, the year of release is upon us. I'm not going to be liberal in giving anymore. You know, God tells him, hey, look, you know, uh, and in other places in the Old Testament, God essentially says, look, if you give to the poor, I've got your back. I keep record of these, of this ledger, <laughs> you know, and, and you'll be taken care of. So that's cool. Yeah. Isn't there a scripture that says that when you give to the poor, you're loaning to God or something? Yes. Mm-hmm. In Proverbs nineteen seventeen, it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. So we see here that, um, you know, generosity towards the poor is viewed as giving directly to Yahweh, to our God, and that he keeps track of the ledger. You know, he takes care of the people who take care of the poor. Wow, that's so cool. I can see where you could build a prosperity theology from that, though. Sure, <laughs> sure, absolutely. But I think that's missing the point. I think making it all about yourself getting rich, almost like using the system of giving to the poor so that you can enrich yourself is just not what this verse is saying here. Uh, Even though it is the case that God really does care about the vulnerable in a society, whether the widows, the orphans, the resident alien, the poor, and he really does care how especially his people treat these vulnerables. And, uh, you know, this is something you're saying hasn't changed. That God still cares about the poor today and that God still cares about especially how his people treats the poor. Yep, absolutely. There's all sorts of cool provisions that God put in. And, you know, you got the year of Jubilee every 50th year. And that essentially, you know, in theory would have reset that economy in ancient Israel. That's mentioned in Leviticus 25. What's interesting about that is we're not sure if they ever did or not. I mean, it's so radical and it doesn't really get mentioned in the rest of the Old Testament. But it's, it's just a fantastic idea in terms of not, not letting too much wealth accumulate and too much injustice accumulate over time. Just- I would say we have evidence to the contrary in Jeremiah, where God's judgment is that they are taken out of the land for 70 years so that the land may enjoy its Sabbaths. Mm-hmm. In other words, like the people did not, did not practice that, that seventh year resetting of debt 
and as a result of that, like God's just getting all the people out of the land uh, because part of that was not sowing your crops right. for a year. Yep, exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah, let the land uh, set for a year and let the nutrients replenish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the Jubilee, well, I guess the Jubilee is technically a different subject. But I mean, I, my point is if they didn't even do the seven-year cycle, how much less did they would they have done the 50-year cycle? Correct. Way more, way more uh, interesting and, and provocative there. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing that, that God did, or, or last example I have, there's plenty of things that God did to help the poor, encouragement to, to loan to the poor and so forth. But the last specific provision I wanted to mention is in Leviticus uh, 19, uh, verses 9 and 10, it talks about leaving the corners and remnants of the field to be gleaned by the poor. Uh, it gets mentioned other times in the Bible, very famously in, in the book of Ruth, when Ruth gleans from Boaz's fields. And of course, Boaz, you know, figures it, finds out who she is and he tells his workers, hey, you know, leave Ruth a little extra. Let's make sure it's profitable for her to come to our field, you know, because <laughs> he wants to make sure that, that they're taken care of, uh, which is great on his behalf. What's really fascinating about that Leviticus 19 account, though, is it's actually directly in the context of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. That's verse 18 in the same chapter. Mm. So it's really interesting that you have all these provisions for the poor, including the corners and remnants and just other ways of relating to people in the society at the time. And sort of the capstone at the end of that section is love your neighbor as yourself in verse 18. Yeah, yeah, I really like this system. Really, really a cool system. I, I don't know what the analog today would be to this. Uh, our our society is so much more complicated. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, really a cool way to deal with the complexity of benevolence mm-hmm. uh, because you're making it available, but you're not delivering it to the person. Correct. And uh, so people are, people are still working. There's still a sense of pride like, hey, I went and I harvested this food. Uh, but at the same time, they're given access to the to the edges that would be easiest for them to get to from the the byways and the little paths and roads and so on you know it just seems like a really functional system uh whereas our systems today our welfare systems today there there are a lot of problems with them that that this system wouldn't have although there would still be the issue of handicapped people who aren't able-bodied enough to glean food. So I wonder how they were taken care of. I'm not sure it really says in the Old Testament. No, you have the example of the the people being carried around for task alms and in the Gospels, for example. And uh, that'd be the thing I'd point to for those. Yeah. They had to have support, uh, family or hired help or whatever uh, the case might be. All right. Yeah. So let's go to the Gospels. Let's go to the New Testament. What do we see there about the poor? Yeah, so it's really interesting because Jesus and his disciples, they were itinerant preachers. You know, they were wandering around the land and and never stayed in one place for too long. And they got supported by people. They had a bag. Judas famously stole from that bag. Uh, But what's, what's fascinating is we have a couple of examples where it seems like they gave to the poor, even though they themselves were receiving aid and receiving help uh, financially. Um, it says, for example, in Matthew 26, 9, that's when there's a lot of commotion about uh, the woman anointing Jesus. And they're all complaining, oh, you know, what if we had sold all this? We could have given some of it to the poor. I, I believe that that's an indication that, that Jesus and the disciples were 
at least pro-giving to the poor and probably gave to the poor out of their own bag at times when, when God worked in them to do that. Yeah, yeah. We see a lot of that in the early church too, right? Yes, yep, absolutely. You have in Acts 2 and 4, you have distributions made uh, from wealthier people to poor people. And it's really cool that it says, essentially it says, as needs arose or as, as any had need is sometimes how it's phrased in our Bible translations. As people had needs in the early church, in the very early church, in, in Acts 2 and 4, there's mention of distribution being made there. And then in Acts 6, you've got the, the famous first reference of a, of a soup kitchen, I guess, or, or a, a place of uh, giving food, a daily ministration of food for, for the widows. And you have conflict. And you have conflict. You have complaining. <laughs> yes, you have an unequal distribution. And then they're sent in to investigate and set people over it and that sort of a thing. And, and they get it all resolved. Uh, but, yeah. but they definitely were trying to uh, minister, give food to uh, the widows uh, among the community yeah. of faith there. Um, what sticks out to me there is the qualifications of the people they put in charge of the food distribution program. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, these are not the dregs of the disciples, you know, the ones that are just sort of partially committed and uh, not very good at dealing with people or not very spiritual. I mean, no, these are, these are superstars. Mm-hmm. They need to be full of the spirit and of wisdom and of good repute. It's really an indication of the value of the ministry of taking care of the poor that the apostles picked such qualified people to be involved with it, such as Stephen and Philip. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, They definitely were the the best that they could find, essentially. It's a wonderful example. What else we got? So in Acts 11, we have Agabus prophesying of a famine in Judea, and then you have aid being sent uh, from mixed churches in other parts of the world uh, to uh, the uh, church in, in Jerusalem. And that was that aid was sent through the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Um, so that's another great example of that. Um, one of my favorites is what, what Paul mentions in the book of Galatians. You know, he's in, in chapter two, he's discussing uh, the various ministries, the ministry to the circumcision that James, Peter, and John had, and then the ministry to the uncircumcision that Paul had. And to me, it's so pointed that James, Peter, and John give Paul only one special admonition that's recorded in Galatians 2, and it's be sure to remember the poor. Hmm. And what's also fascinating is Paul's response to that. Paul's response to that wasn't, oh, I guess so, if you say so. You know, I wasn't thinking about it, you know, uh, but sure, you know, that makes sense, you know. He says, uh, essentially, I didn't need the reminder. I was already eager to do that. That's clearly a part of uh, Paul's ministry is his heart towards uh, remembering the poor and taking care of people uh, who were less fortunate. But I think the two best passages and and the two most uh, impactful passages to me in all the New Testament are in James 2 and in 1 John 3. And in, in James 2... Uh, it talks about if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then the next verse, verse 17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the implication here is clear. If we want to have faith, living faith, and we want to show that through our works, 
helping helping the brothers and sisters in need is is a classic example of that. First John three is, is just as powerful. Verses sixteen through eighteen say, "By this we know love that He Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." Then verse 17, it gives a specific example of laying down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And again, the implication is, is just absolutely clear here, that if we want to truly love our brother, if we want to uh, truly walk in love, then if we have the ability to give to our brothers and sisters in the financial category, in the physical realm, and we don't do it, then that's a demonstration that we don't really have God's love abiding in us. I mean, those are powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. Hmm. And, and is this understanding that you're, you're talking about here different than your, your background or was this pretty much what you were trained in as far as your previous ministry experience? You know, in, in my former church, um, we didn't really talk about the poor much. You know, giving was pretty much directed at the church, and and we didn't we didn't really talk about it. Uh, you know, some ministers may have discouraged it, and some ministers probably didn't mention it. But I don't really remember any ministers encouraging it. Now, you know, in our fellowships or stuff like that, maybe things. Maybe I was too young to understand things at times. You know, people may have done things uh, behind closed doors, but I'm talking about from, from the pulpit or from the lectern. Uh, I didn't really hear much about the poor growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that in my background as well, it's not something that was emphasized. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think what you're bringing out here is that whether we're looking at the old Testament or at the new Testament, that giving to the poor is absolutely essential if you're going to claim that you're one of God's people. Yes. Uh, because God cares about the poor. You know, I, I think a lot of us heard and saw Christian leaders, uh, not necessarily in my own church or anything, but just like on the radio, on TV, whatever, saying, oh, well, you know, the best thing you can do for the poor is to g- get them a job or to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get job skills or whatever. I think that's not the total picture, though. I mean, this is not this is not necessarily what we're reading here <laughs> in these verses, is it? it no. It's not saying, well, you better get them a job because they're all lazy and that's why they're poor. Mm-hmm. There's no hint of that here. No. And I, I'm sure they had some lazy people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. <laughs> Just like we've got some lazy people. We've got hardworking poor. We've got lazy poor. We've got poor that uh, are in that situation because of past trauma or mental illness or just physical limitations because of whatever that's gone on in their bodies. Uh, So there's always a a whole range of categories of why somebody's in this situation. Right. Yep. And and like you said, the clear mandate from scripture here is to have compassion on them, not to, like you said, find them a job. (laughs) Now, compassion could include helping them financially and then, you know, shepherding to them to the point of, of a better rehabilitation and getting a job that might be all part of it, but, but it starts with helping the need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I went to school in Boston was really the first time that I had to develop my own personal policy mm-hmm. regarding homeless beggars yes. because, you know, I was going to encounter an average of 
at least three or four each way yep. as I rode the train and then the subway to get to school and then to get back home. I, I remember it being such a, a difficult decision to make because it's like, on the one hand, yeah, a lot of them are just going to take my money and buy booze. I mean, that right. <laughs> that is a fact. Yeah. You know, I, I can't have any control over that. But what I arrived at was just to be sort of like focused on, the, on, on my side of it and not to worry about what this person is going to do with it. Because what I discovered, Will, in commuting every day, you know, I commuted five days a week uh, for two and a half years from uh, Providence to Boston. It only took me a couple of weeks to figure out who the regulars were right. mm-hmm. who, who worked a particular territory of sidewalk. You know, I just basically gave each of them a dollar and, you know, I had like almost no money at the time. So (laughs) like giving each one a dollar, now I've got like five less dollars for lunch, you know, but (laughs) it sounds so trite now, but like when you're a poor college student, five bucks matters, man. You know, my goal was like, all right, I want to develop a relationship with these guys and talk to them about God and make it clear to them that I'm not giving just because... I'm a sucker or I am naive or that I'm just a nice guy. I'm giving because of Christ. Right. I'm giving because this is something to do with my worship to God and, 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 and that sort of thing. And so I would come up with like little, little phrases to say to them, you know, like God bless you or whatever right. that just, you know, made it clear that it was a faith-based decision on my part and then like whatever they do with it they do with it i what am i gonna do i can't control that some of them it was it was good and i and i was able to have a couple conversations throughout the years where you know i had enough time to stop and hang out and and chat and uh you know it's limited but it it, it's it's what i kind of landed on for that whole thing yeah and i think there's different approaches that work too you know um my wife and i we give to an organization a christian organization here in Louisville that um, on a daily basis houses uh, approximately 500 homeless people and um, serves like something like 2,500 meals a day to homeless people. And so, you know, we, we feel convicted and, and, and feel like a partnership with that organization is, is a really good way to help the homeless. And they do a very good job of rehabilitating people and, and offering them Christ and offering them, uh, job training all uh, while they're in protected housing and, and, and are getting three square meals a day. Um, and so I think there's a lot of approaches that work and, and I just encourage people to walk with God when it comes to that. Yeah. The, uh, the other, sorry to keep derailing you here, but I, <laughs> I just, uh, uh, the, the, the other thought I had was my experience coming on ministry um, here at, at Living Hope so many years back that uh, it turned out there was a ton of giving and support for the poor within the congregation that just nobody ever knew anything about except for the person who was being supported. Mm. And there were times where we, we were supporting three, sometimes five people on a monthly basis because, you know, of their financial need. And, you know, the government programs weren't doing enough for them to cover their bills and what they needed, and the church stepped in. And, you know, the problem with a lot of that kind of stuff is that Jesus taught us, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't be like the Pharisees who like to pray and have everyone be like, oh, look at how well they pray. And that, you know, let your giving be in secret and so on. So, so much of the the giving 
the real like serious giving that had been going around in my own community of faith for so many years that I, I was just oblivious to what was there, but it was just invisible to me. And in one sense, I almost wish that there had been uh, regular statements about it. Right. But at the same time, like who wants to embarrass somebody that's like on the church's program? Right. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Uh, so it really is a difficult factor to work with as far as how to model it really. Yep. That's a great point. All right. What else? You got another point. You talked about how all wealth is God's. Mm -hmm. You talked about how from old and new Testament perspective, taking care of the poor is so important. Uh, What's your third? My third is that there's also special consideration given to ministers and to those who serve God's people. And I would sort of lump missions under this as well. And so, like we talked about last time in the old Testament, uh, the tithes and really a lot of the other offerings too, uh, directly supported the Levites and the priests who could not own land, couldn't farm, couldn't uh, provide food for themselves. You know, they were in service to God. And uh, in the New Testament, we see that continuing. Um, you know, Paul discusses giving and receiving on a personal level in, in, in multiple of his epistles. Just a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul quoted Deuteronomy 25, you know, don't muzzle the ox who treads the grain. And he makes the point that uh, ministers should be supported financially, Uh, even though when he was in Corinth, he goes on to say he worked uh, on his own to support himself so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. Um, And then Thessalonians is the other great example. Both in in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul mentions giving. Um, And he talks about how he supported himself and he didn't want to be a burden. What he adds in Thessalonians that he doesn't mention in Corinthians is that part of the reason why he did it was to be a good example and not being lazy. Because as you talked about before, apparently there were some lazy people in the church of Thessalonica back then. Mm -hmm. He supported himself and his his, uh, companions supported themselves. And they labored, as it says, day and night to support themselves and to do the work of the ministry. So it's it's definitely clear that that Paul felt um, he was worthy of being supported, and that you know other ministers were worthy of being supported, and uh, certainly we we can all agree that missions are worth supporting. Yeah, there's not a pastor worth worth his salt who doesn't know Deuteronomy twenty five four. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing the wheat. Man. <laughs> it's it's so funny that. We, we find that applied to ministry giving, but <laughs> where the minister is the ox is like laboring and not getting fed. You know, it just, it's not good. Um, and, you know, there's so much to say. I, I, I totally agree with you about Paul and his the complexities of his Greco-Roman system of the patron-client relationship and the reciprocity that would be expected if Paul would if Paul took money from the Corinthians, for example, like first Corinthians nine, he gives, I don't even remember how many arguments, like four or five arguments. I mean, every, he throws in everything, (laughs) including the kitchen sink to make the point that they should be supporting him financially. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, but I never took a dime from you and I never will. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like such a strange chapter. And it's really not even, I think about giving, I think it's about, uh, other regard and and putting others ahead of yourself and you know this whole issue of e- eating food sacrificed to idols in chapter eight and chapter ten on either side of chapter nine, but his points still stand. His theology is still sound that that the people should support their minister financially, 
also that the minister shouldn't take money from people if then it makes the people think that they have power over the minister as it would in Corinth in that situation. Uh, however, he has no problem taking money from the Philippians. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Philippians is basically a thank you note. If you read it carefully, yep. and especially all the stuff that's not theological, the stuff where he's talking about situations, and you, you'll see that it's basically a thank you note for the Philippians generously supporting him. And it's a lot of how he was able to do so much is that this church was really taking care of his needs. Absolutely, yeah. And he believed that fruit would abound to their account, as it says in Philippians 4.19. Yeah, so that whole idea of reciprocity is there as far as, like, you're, you're doing the right thing, you're, you're giving to the poor, you're giving to God's uh, ministers and servants, and God's taking care of you. So we've seen a lot of the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these three, three areas, how all wealth is God's, and how we should care about the poor and the ministers. What has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, I've got, I've got three things here, too. And, and really, the, the first one is sort of the foundation, and the other two, I think, are sort of consequences of the first one. And the first one we mentioned last time a little bit is that giving is not codified in the sacrificial system anymore. So, you know, in the Old Testament, you have, depending on how you count and and categorize upwards of 14 different offerings. And 12 of those are are enumerated specifically in Leviticus. The other two you can find elsewhere in the law. You you have this rich tradition, for example, of like free will giving, the free will offering, which is mentioned in Leviticus 22. And this is the tradition um, that gets mentioned in 1 Chronicles 29. It was a free will offering to support the the building of Solomon's temple. And that's that's the prayer of dedication that, that David is sort of giving at, with this offering, this free will offering that's being given. Um, you know, another great example of free will offerings um, is the time of Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 30 and 31. And there's just a whole bunch of really cool things in that context. You know, Hezekiah calls a Passover for the first time in a long time. You know, people are so thankful to be together. Worship, they're worshiping God. You know, Hezekiah provides a free will, a massive free will offering from his royal uh, flocks and herds. And then the people respond by, you know, tearing down idols. They give an abundance and they mention tithes and burnt offerings. And some of those would have been free will offerings as well. And so, you know, on one hand, you know, you'd like to be able to go to Second Chronicles 30 and 31 and just like, you know, chronicle the spiritual development of the people and, and see how giving played such an important role in it. You know, Hezekiah's example of giving, how the people respond by tearing down idols, and then they respond by also giving financially. And I think you can definitely do that. You can definitely draw some of those parallels. But I think the thing to, to remember in, in Chronicles is, is that at the end of the day, they're just going from not doing the law to doing the law, which is wonderful. I mean, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. They're, they're going from being disobedient to being obedient. Uh, but I think in, in our day and time, it goes beyond that. And like we talked about briefly last time, Hebrews 7 through 10, you know, it makes it clear that the sacrificial system has been done away with in Christ. Um, and specifically, I, I like this, uh, the end of the section here in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, 
which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What, what all this makes me think about in terms of what's changed between the Old Testament and New Testament is you have the change from the law of Moses uh, to the law of Christ. And so where we see obedience in Second Chronicles, um, in, the, in the times of Hezekiah, we see people going back to obeying the law. And that's a wonderful example. And it definitely was part of their spiritual development. I think that there's greater potential, there's a sort of a greater blessing uh, for people who take partnership with God and with the Lord Jesus in their finances and follow the law of Christ, which isn't bound by a percentage. It's not bound by certain offerings at certain times. It's as the spirit leads. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everyone would agree that the sacrificial system has come to an end of Christianity, at least. I mean, maybe there are some messianics that, if the temple were still standing, would want to sacrifice. I, I, I can't really speak for those types, sure. uh, but I, I think generally, Christianity as a whole, because especially of the epistle to the Hebrews, has come to the conclusion that Christ's sacrifice has fulfilled the anti-type to which the sacrificial system pointed, right. and as a result. The sacrificial system is no longer required. It's obsoleted by the fact that what those sacrifices pointed to has come and has completed once for all, that's a Hebrews terminology, right. this final required sacrifice for everyone. And uh, so as a result of that, that really, I mean, based on everything you shared last time, I mean, that really has a earth-shattering effect on the tithe, mm -hmm. on giving. Because so much of it was to support the temple, to support the priesthood, to support the Levites. What were the temple, the priests, and the Levites all doing? They're offering sacrifices. That was the <laughs> chief. That was the chief function of worship: was butchering animals, uh, roasting them, distributing parts of them for sacred meals, taking care of the priesthood out of the, this food. And, and so on. So, I mean, it really changes the system a great deal as far as how it all works now in a New Testament perspective where you don't have a sacrificial system anymore, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. And, and the key there for people who have taught the tithe or have believed the tithe before is just to recognize that, look, the tithe is in Leviticus. It's with all the other sacrifices. So we have to come up with a reason why Paul doesn't talk, doesn't use the word tithe a single time in any of the epistles. And I believe the reason is because he knew it was part of the sacrificial system and he knew it was, it was done away with. What about free will giving? Cause that was there in the old Testament, right? Right. Yeah. So, so you have that free will sacrifice from Leviticus 22. And I, I think for me, that's the second, that's the second change is in the old Testament, you have all these different offerings and free will offering is, is among them. Um, but really in the New Testament, there's a gr much greater emphasis on, on really what that pointed towards, which I would just call free will giving. There, there are several verses I think of, but the, probably the crown jewel for me is in 2 Corinthians 9. And I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 6 through 8. Um, and this is in the context where he's been, he's been talking about financial giving for a period of about a chapter and a half at this point. 
And he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So for me, the key to this is the phrase, as he has decided in his heart. And it says very clearly that it's not reluctantly or under compulsion. So when you think about under compulsion, the definition of that would be according to the law. <laughs> that is, you know, that is compulsion. You know, you're, you're being told this is what you must give to, to be right with God, essentially. But I think that there's more here uh, for us to glean for me, I love this word bountifully in the passage here. Uh, the, the word bountifully comes from a Greek phrase, epiulagia, and that means through praise or through blessing. And so what Paul has in mind here, um, we can sort of see it as like a, a double entendre, but, but basically it, it's about having bounty in the heart first. Bounty in the heart comes first, and then we can talk about bountifully in amount, if that's available, if you have the means for that. But really the bountifully, the primary point that he's making here about bountifully and sparingly is about the heart. And that's why he's so careful in verse seven to talk about it's as you decide in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. A lot of people point to this passage and think that it's talking primarily about amount, but it's really primarily talking about attitude in this context. Well, it also seems to indicate, based on verse 6 there, that it says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This sounds like it's saying that the more you give, the more you receive from God. Mm -hmm. How would you work that into what you're putting forward here? Yeah, I, I would say that when we encourage people, like when we ourselves, we develop uh, what I call a giving mindset, when we develop that and we start acting out on that, I think that it really opens a lot of doors for us in, in, in a lot of different categories. And it's not, uh, to me, you know, the old prosperity gospel view of this would be sort of tit for tat. You know, if you, like you said, if you, if you plant a seed, uh, then you'll get a lot more financially later. And I don't think that that's what's talking about. Really, for me, the whole cycle of giving and receiving, it, it's fueled by the attitude and not the amount. And then what you reap, the rewards that you reap um, could be in any number of categories. Um, and it's really up to God. But I think for me, it's about it's about walking by the spirit and about developing that relationship with, with God and then seeing the results of that bear out over time. And this is really a great category for people to partner with God and to follow his direction on what to do uh, with their finances. All right. Very good. What's your third point on this one about a discontinuity or a change between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, so I, I think the third the third point, and I would say this is a point of greater emphasis. It's not something that's um, ignored in the Old Testament. It's something that uh, gets greater emphasis is the wealthy giving liberally. You know, in the Old Testament, God says in Deuteronomy 14 that there would be no poor in Israel if they obeyed him, if they did the year of release, if they did the jubilee, if they did you know, left all the corners of their fields and so on and so forth, that they did everything, then there would be no poor in the land. But later in the same passage, God 
predicted that they would not obey him and therefore the poor would, quote, never cease to be in the land. And as we've seen, there's great uh, encouragement throughout the Old Testament to, to help the poor. And in times, like you mentioned, there are pronouncements against the wealthy. Um, you mentioned in one Jeremiah passage earlier, you know, Jeremiah 7, 5 through 11 is another example of wealthy people taking uh, advantage of poor. But when you change the framework, when you change the framework from a framework centered around um, you know, the Levitical system and the temple offerings, and you shift it entirely to a free will kind of a system where people are walking by the spirit, then and you're not thinking about, you know, oh, you know, my, my minimum is, is 10%. And then if I do more than that, then, it, then it's sort of icing on the cake. When you get beyond that way of thinking, that's when you get to something like in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says in verses 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So if you're wealthy, if you, especially if you're a wealthy by American standards, you know, 10%, you know, which may have been, quote unquote, the minimum that you were taught or you thought was required. I think we got to get beyond that. You know, Paul says here that the rich should be generous and ready to share. Uh, and that's not bound to me by a percentage. And so, you know, that's what I love about New Testament giving is, is that, you know, in the Old Testament time, most people didn't have the spirit, you know, prophets, kings, uh, priests, people, uh, with specific functions and ministries uh, would have the spirit on them from time to time. Uh, people like who designed and built the tabernacle and the temple, for example, you know, those are people that had the spirit, but in the post Pentecost church, we now all, all true believers have the spirit and we can be expected to listen to God's voice when it comes to the subject of giving. And so I would say, you know, when we talk about the wealthy giving liberally, to me, the tithe doesn't cut it. And you gave the great example of Rick Warren, um, who reverse tithed. I think that's a great example of what First Timothy 6 is talking about here and what how radical Christian giving can really be. Well, I guess we'll get to the more practical stuff next time, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation <laughs> to summarize the system that you're, you're putting forward here. We'll get to that next time. But what I hear you saying is that when it comes to the New Testament, sacrifices are done, first of all. Yes. Second of all, the emphasis is on free will giving, yes. following the leading of the Spirit, rather than sticking to just 10%. Right. And then number three, that if you are wealthy, then you should give more. That's correct. Your reasoning for that was First Timothy 6.17 and 18 and 19, where it talks about how you're supposed to be generous and ready to share, especially if you are somebody who has uh, riches in the present age. There's a lot to that, and I suspect we can get more into it next time because we are kind of winding things down here today. I I will ask you this, though. Let's say... I I can't resist asking a a practical (laughs) question. Let's say somebody is... I mean, the poorest I ever was, Will... Mm. was when I was in college. And 
for whatever reason, the way I'm wired, I love college. So I went to college a lot, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, year after year. And uh, I I don't even know how many years, seven, eight years of college. And every time I was in college, I was poor. No question about it. And so you're saying that like, if you're, if you're poor, if you're in college or maybe you're out of work for whatever reason, especially right now we're recording this, COVID is still very much a factor in our world. A lot of people are out of work um, still even in 2021 that uh, in those cases you wouldn't need to give, but that if you are uh, wealthy, you should you shouldn't get just give ten percent and be like oh well, I met my legal obligation I'm good is that a fair summary for what you're saying Yeah yeah that's exactly right yeah and 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 I and I'm also very quick though to distinguish between giving in the financial category and then giving in other categories because I I believe that if you're poor financially if you're a Christian if you're in the community of faith then by default you have so much to give because you have the living God residing in you. And so I don't want to cap what people can give when we talk about multiple categories. But when we talk about finances, yes, if you are on welfare, if you are a single mom struggling to make ends meet, if you are a college student, you are poor in your present economic system, whether that's America or, or in Europe or in Africa, wherever you are, then yes, you, you have zero obligation or, or need to give in the financial category, or at least on a very limited basis, uh, definitely 10% would not be the standard that I would, I would recommend pastorally in those cases. I believe that the giving mindset can be cultivated in other categories as well, and that people can reap wonderful rewards from giving in other categories. And, and we'll probably get into that next time, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You, you reminded me of Clement of Alexandria's famous sermon. He's about 180 A.D., 150 years after Christ. Who is the rich man who will be saved? And this is, this is one of the most ancient Christian sermons outside of the Bible that we have. And he talks about a tree and a vine and how they need each other. And the tree is the rich person and the vine is the poor person. And the rich person in a sense, supports the poor person to be able to get up to the uh, the sun in the forest by climbing the tree, and uh, that the poor person also provides a benefit to the rich person. Maybe the—I I forget it exactly—maybe the vine protects it from animals eating the tree or something. I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly, but there is a symbiosis between the rich and the poor within God's economy, within his people, that— there is a mutuality in how we can take care of each other. And this is really something else that's driven home in Luke 16. Do you also see a symbiosis between the rich and the poor within the household of God? I do. I see, us, I see it pointed to in the very beginning of the church after Pentecost in, in Acts 2, 44 through 47, you have an environment where Everyone had, it says, uh, all things in common in verse 44. And then in verse 45, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the result of that was you had a community of people who were eating together. uh, They were attending the temple together. They were praising God together. uh, They were learning about uh, more about God and and what walking by the spirit meant uh, together. 
And as a result of that, there was an enormous impact in Jerusalem that, that reverberated to the rest of the world and, and ended up with us 2,000 years later, essentially uh, having a conversation, <laughs> both being Christian and, and loving God and loving the Lord Jesus. And, and I don't think that that happens as easily or as quickly if people weren't eager to give and have that symbiotic relationship and be willing to both give and receive when the, when the time uh, called for that. Very good. As Shane Claiborne likes to say, the early church ended poverty because there was no one with a need any longer because they were able to meet each other's needs. And, uh, you know, there was just a, a beautiful picture painted there in Acts chapter 2. Uh, of course, there was uh, there was a bit of a problem with Ananias and Sapphira that we don't have time to get into today <laughs> in chapter five, uh, but it is it is germane to our our topic, right? Because they were giving and they were giving a lot, and yet their heart wasn't right, Correct. which is kind of your main point here. Mm-hmm. And and God did not receive from them because it was a dollar amount. Uh, in fact, they suffered God's judgment. That's uh, so that's that's another one to bring in on this whole subject, but uh, really, really great stuff for today. Any any final thoughts before we close out? The New Testament giving is about freedom. It's about walking by the Spirit. And so I think it's jarring to hear someone say, hey, I don't believe in the tithe anymore. I'm really pointing towards free will giving as being very important. Not that tithing is not a bad example or something to think about or, you know, interesting to consider, I'm, I'm trying to highlight the positive here that it's about free will giving. It's about cultivating a heart of, of liberality. Yeah. And it's a, a, what you're saying as well is that it's, it also depends a great deal on your particular situation. Yes, absolutely. And uh, just w- one last thing on that in the course of many people's lives, not everybody, but many people, when you're young, you're poor. Mm. And then as you age, you eventually figure out some way to make money. Mm-hmm. And then as you get into your middle age years and then your older years, you get good at making money mm-hmm. and you end up having more. Now, obviously, this is not the case for everybody, but for a lot of people, at least in this country, it is the case. And so I think your giving should change over time. Yes. And uh, that's really what you're bringing in is to, to really consider the heart of giving and to follow God's leading in this area rather than hunker down to a, a simple percentage based on what the Old Testament was doing. So uh, thank you for your thoughts today, Will. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Sean. Well, that's where we're going to end things here. Next time we'll get into more on the subject of giving, and we'll take a look at Malachi chapter 3. We'll cover some myths about Christian giving and also some keys to Christian giving, and that'll wrap up our series next time on the subject. If you'd like to get in touch with Will Barlow, probably the best way to do that is his website, studydrivenfaith.org, studydrivenfaith.org, where you can get in touch with him. Also, if you'd like to ask any questions or leave any comments about today's episode, number 385, Giving Throughout the Bible, come on over to restitutio.org and leave a comment there. Speaking of which, last time we got a couple of comments in On episode 384, Giving in the Old Testament, Kevin George wrote in, Great interview. I did an in-depth study of this topic about 20 years ago and after also facing extreme financial hardships due to family medical problems. What I discovered was much of what Will Barlow mentioned. And then he gives a link to his study. If you're curious about that, come on to Restitutio and find episode 384 and you can take a look at that. 
Also, someone named Fiona wrote in saying, thank you, so interesting, looking forward to the next part. Someone named Lilia wrote in on the Restitutio Facebook group saying, as always, the podcast interview was really good. I appreciated the discussion. I think most everyone can come up with a tithe abuse story. Growing up, the local church where I went to school sent a letter to my dad. They said that they estimated his income and thus a tithe of X amount of dollars was reasonable to give. I stayed in the school, but my dad never went to church. I have often wondered what God will do with people who have dedicated their lives to represent him, but only succeed in making him look bad and push people away from the gospel. Ouch. That is an... (laughs) That is a nasty story you tell there, but uh, there has been a lot of abuse, and yet giving remains an important part of what the Bible teaches us and the practicality of Christian ministry as well as Christian aid to the poor and missionary work in other countries. So, And from what I've seen, people are generous, and they do give, and they, and they do it with a good heart, and they don't need to be cajoled or made to feel guilty or have uh, requests for giving shoved in their face all the time. I I don't appreciate that, and I'm sure most other Christians don't appreciate that either. So some really good thoughts here. Thanks, everybody, for your comments on this one. Also, David Mitchell wrote in saying, My family left the church I grew up in until my mid-teens, partly because of coming to a disagreement about the necessity of tithing. My parents realized it's actually not required, The church I've attended as an adult derides the prosperity gospel, yet teaches tithing as a requirement. When I push the pastor privately to either teach it the way it's taught in the law or or to teach that we're free to choose what to give, he told me that people need clear guidelines and yet that it would be too complicated to teach what's dictated in the law. Thanks for writing that in. Appreciate you taking the time. That's it for this week. We'll catch you next week for our third and final part of this giving series. And speaking of which, if you would like to give to Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.